Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. Today, we have a special Hanukkah lecture by Aaron Imey. Hanukkah is not quite a biblical holiday, yet it has become a very visible Jewish holiday around the world. The events that Hanukkah commemorates are recorded in the four books of the Maccabees, none of which enter either the Jewish or Protestant Christian canons. Yet we find the theology of the Maccabees in the New Testament, underpinning the theology of the early church. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem. This, the fourth night of Hanukkah. It's a special little Bible study that we're having tonight. Normally, we would be discussing the book of Leviticus, which, as we've been you know, basically doing three verses a night, uh, is going to take us until the Messiah comes back to finish. But it's a fantastic book, and there's been actually a lot more there than probably even I thought uh, was going to be in it. Discovered a few things brand new for myself, which I really appreciated. Best book of the Bible. But tonight, because we are actually in the season of Hanukkah, and because of us being in Jerusalem, probably behooves us to try and just have a few words about the subject. And um, I suggest that the Maccabees. And the theology of the Maccabees is an underpinning or a basis for the New Testament. And I'm going to endeavor to uh, explore that theme a bit. So let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we should always, always acknowledge your kingship and authority over us, our lives and our families. And uh, we acknowledge that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell with your people, so we invite your Holy Spirit to once again fill our homes, guard our families, and uh, give us wisdom as we explore your words. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will continue to speak to your people and always, always defend your people. In the name of the Messiah, amen. Amen. We also thank God for rain, which we have had a little bit of. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Yes. We'll have donuts at the end, okay? Students are already wanting donuts. All right, here we are in the festival of Hanukkah. Now, of course, all of us are going to acknowledge that Hanukkah is not in the Bible. Although somebody will say, yes, it is. It's in the, the Gospel of John, which is true. There is a sentence, one, one pasuk, one sentence, which says that uh, our Lord, the Messiah went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. So now I ask, what does, what does the, just by that verse alone, can you tell me anything about Hanukkah? The answer is, of course, no, you cannot, not from that verse. Okay? You have no idea what that was. You need to go to other sources. But, of course, you won't find it in the Hebrew Bible. Isn't that incredibly interesting? Here we are celebrating uh, a Jewish festival, and it is being, becoming incredibly popular in mainstream Judaism. It's becoming one of the big, big festivals. It's almost outweighing Christmas, even amongst the Gentiles. Gentiles are running around saying happy Hanukkah to everybody, and they don't even know what that means. Um, it could be because it's a festival that lasts eight days. Christmas is one day. Okay, we have the 12 days of Christmas, but no one really does 12 days of Christmas. Okay. And, uh, and so um, it's becoming quite popular. It could be becoming popular purely because it's also not Christmas. That sort of reaction to it's not Christmas, so therefore I like this one. It's possible. 
Uh, the point is, we're celebrating it. It's not in the Bible yet. Uh, it's an incredible festival. God has done something, and everything God does is worth remembering. Everything that God does is worth remembering. So God, uh, as you know, is the guy who invents sacred time. He's the one that makes time holy. He's the one that appreciates calendars. He's the one that puts seasons together. So today, Hanukkah, the actual meaning of Hanukkah, has, just like Christmas, has been captured by the secular world, and now it's full of shopping bonanzas, discounts, donuts, bad traffic, okay, really bad traffic, uh, lots of events around the city, people celebrating, um, and it's become incredibly commercialized just like Christmas. And that's something that the secular world does. The secular world takes sacred time and corrupts it. And what we really need to do, ladies and gentlemen, is reclaim it. I think as, uh, as followers of the Messiah, we reclaim sacred time. So celebrate Hanukkah, but do so because of the, of the events of what the Messiah, of what God did uh, to, to save his people. And, of course, for those that uh, heard the lecture last year, uh, what's the one thing that didn't happen which we all like to celebrate at Hanukkah? The oil. Oil, the miracle of the lights, right? Yeah. There, are, there are four books of the Maccabees. Well, there's actually six, but two of them are only in Slavonic, so no one actually reads them, unless, of course, you're um, a Russian Orthodox priest. Um, so there are four books of the Maccabees. And uh, three of them tell the story of the Maccabees, and one is a very the third book of Maccabees is, is a very philosophical treatment of theology that's inside, not actually about a historical, doesn't actually mention the history at all. And in all of the events, there's no miracle of the oil. Wow. And in the Jewish prayer, there's only one prayer in the, in the, in the Jewish Siddur for Hanukkah. So you pick up your Jewish prayer book. And there's prayers for shachari, mincha, ma'ariv, morning, evening, afternoon prayer. There's big, long prayers for the Sabbath. There's long prayers for Shabbat. There's prayers for Yom Kippur, uh, prayers for what you're supposed to do after having a baby, all kinds of prayers. Get to Hanukkah, and there's one. And you think, wow, gee, what's so... Um, I don't, the, the, uh, the, the, when they were crafting together the prayer book, it wasn't a big deal back then. It's become a big deal uh, now, as time has progressed, and in that prayer, there is also no mention of oil. All it mentions are, is praise the Lord for the Lord has done incredibly wonderful things for us in these days. So, what I want to say is that here's the, the Hebrew Bible, and here's the New Testament. Now, this is at, by the end of the Tanakh and the beginning of the Brit Chadashah. There's about 400 years in the middle. And we call this time in the middle the silent years. Now, we didn't call it that. Some bright spark uh, from universities decided to call it that because here's a book, there's a book, and there doesn't seem to be anything in the middle, so they called it silent. They said, oh, God must have stopped talking. There weren't any prophets. Nothing was actually happening. But there was lots happening. And so the book of Maccabees appears in the middle. In fact, in the middle is another whole big set of material. So the one I've got here is simply the um, Apocrypha. But that's only a fraction 
of the, of the Jewish writings that exist during this time period. If you want to get them all, you're going to need a nice big bookshelf. And uh, uh, there'll, there'll be books that um, perhaps one denomination in the entire world will read. And yet they somehow preserved their little, little piece of history. The, the, uh, the Armenians, the church that's actually just right across behind me, um, they are the oldest uh, Christians that we have in the world. What I mean by that? Armenian Orthodoxy um, became the, the official religion of Armenia in the year 271, right? So that's 60 years before it became legal, right? So, so if you, they are, of course, obviously we know Messianics are the first believers in, in Yeshua, but in terms of like a state church, a legalized, recognized piece of Christianity, it's them. And their Bible has about, I think it's 81 books in their Bible, okay? So we have 66 in ours. They've got a few, and uh, they've got books that nobody else has. They've got the life of Adam and Eve and the testament of the 12 patriarchs. So each, each individual patriarch, like Levi and Naphtali, they've all got their own books and uh, very interesting reading for them. Um, but for us, uh, we, we, we wrestle with our little 66. But just prior to this, there was another group. And part of that was the Maccabees. Now, what was going on? in this second temple period, this, this 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. We call that this, the, the second temple period, the time when the, the temple was uh, rebuilt. The Jewish people had returned uh, from Babylon under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they'd begun to resettle the land and to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. They weren't actually in control. They weren't kings. They were essentially vassals and stewards of the Persian Empire. Well, that didn't last. only lasted uh, like that for 100 years or so. Then a, a very famous gentleman decided to arrive. Anyone know his name? Herod the Great. No, not Herod. The one way before that. It's Alexander, Alexander the Great. Yes, Alexander yeah. the Great. So yeah. Alexander just had a real, real um, tiff with the Persians. Those guys were fighting for each other. Alexander marched. Uh, across the Middle East and, uh, and, and took over Persia, Babylon, Nineveh, and got all the way to India and eventually uh, died. Now, when he got to Jerusalem, he didn't attack the city. Does anyone know the story why? You know? Yes, I know. Why? Because um, there was, I think Daniel. Yes. That Alexander did not destroy Jerusalem. Because an entourage, high priest. Yes, the high priests confronted him without an army and just walked with um, a few officers, and he commanded him not to attack the city. And he was yep. impressed. <laughs> was yep. impressed by what the high priest did. <laughs> and not only that, the high priest brought out a scroll of Daniel. Alexander is marching with his army to engage the Persians, and he's winning. He's doing quite well. There is no no opposition in front of him. So he could have sacked the city and done whatever he wanted and renamed it Alexandria. He was very good at that, okay? Um, lots of Alexandrians <laughs> by the end of his little campaign. As the army was coming, the high priest and a small delegation went out to meet him and said, you're not allowed. And, you know, Alexander was sort of struck with, well, who are these, you know, uppity Jews trying to tell him what to do. 
But they said, we've got something to show you. And they showed him the scroll of Daniel. Okay, there is a Greek copy of Daniel 2. It's in the Septuagint. And it talks about the goat and the ram clashing. And they said, you're him. And he was so impressed. He's like, wow, look at that. Sometimes people think that he's the guy that brought Hellenism to the Middle East. That's actually not true. Hellenism, that is the Greek way of thinking about life, the universe and everything, was actually brought here by merchants. Once the world is engaging in commerce, ideas are traded. And so Alexander didn't bring Hellenism. He found it. It was already here. People were already trying to wrestle with it. The Bible, so in, in this time period between the, the Hebrew Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, okay, now, now notice both of these books are written by Jews. Okay? Part of this is, in the, is written in, in the Second Timothy period, and this is written entirely in the Second Timothy period. So they've they're, got a lot of connections already. So into this world comes another set of books. Hellenism translates lots of sacred texts. So the Bible goes into Greek, and people are wrestling with the Bible. But even Gentiles, Gentiles are now reading the Hebrew Scriptures. They are being exposed to monotheism. That doesn't make them monotheists. What it does is they try and synthesize. How does that fit in with us? Okay? And so you get a, you get a bit of that uh, going on. And, um, and so sometimes secularism still looks attractive to us because it likes to synthesize what we're doing, right? It tries to take the message of Jesus. Oh, he's great. He's a, your God's a God of love. God loves everybody. God's actually not going to send anybody to hell. He wouldn't do such a thing. Hell doesn't exist. So you take the truth and then you synthesize it. Well, people were already doing that. So there was uh, a big discussion. So what is the theology that affects the, the, the Maccabees? Well, how does that, 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 uh, that develops just in diaspora, in, the, uh, in Galut, uh, in exile? So we have to go, our story, which is currently now, in um, the Second Temple period, we're going to go all the way back to the First Temple period. We're going to go to the time of Hezekiah. What's so special about Hezekiah? Okay, he's one of our good kings, one of our very few good kings. He was able to, with the Assyrians, he was able to push them back. I mean, he extended it. He asked for extension on his life 15 years. He was able to, by prayer, he went into the temple. I mean, and he talked to the priests and then Isaiah and the whole story of Praying, don't be afraid. The victory will be with the Lord. So what Yvonne, Yvonne was saying, one of our sisters from Brazil, Yvonne is uh, giving me a little summary about Hezekiah, that he's um, famous for, getting, uh, for his prayers, getting an extended life, even though in that extended life he gives birth to Manasseh, the evilest yeah. of kings, and he, and he shows off all the treasuries and ends up inviting the Babylonians. So not so good towards the end. Perhaps it would have been better if, he just died. He wouldn't have asked another 15 years, yeah. All right. So sometimes when our time is up, our time is up. That's okay. All right. So Hezekiah is a vassal king to Assyria. He doesn't want to pay taxes to Assyria. No one wants to pay taxes in the world. But he decides to have a rebellion. Did God tell him to rebel? No. No. God did not tell him to rebel. There was no prophet that walked up to Hezekiah and said, Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord. 
rebel against the mightiest king on the planet for right now. But he does. And Sennacherib gets his army. Yep. And he invades the Golan. And he goes into the Galilee. And he goes down the coastal plain. And he goes down into the Negev. And he captures and defeats everything. Nothing stands in his way. He defeats every Jewish army. He picks up the babies and he smacks them against the rocks. Okay, he rapes all the women, keeps or whatever. Okay, nasty piece of work. Then he surrounds Jerusalem. And we read the story, you know, Tanakh. We read the story in Isaiah. Isaiah 36, 13. Okay. Then the Rav Shakar stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Rav Shakar is like the Ramakal. He's like the... Um, the loyal servant of the king. He speaks for the king. Although, if you actually read Jewish commentaries, they say that Rav Shakar is actually a real name. They say it's actually the name of a real person, not a job title. And they say he could speak Hebrew because he was actually Jewish. Okay? I don't know where they get all that idea from, but that's just a Jewish commentary, okay? Rav Shakar is a person, although it can also be a title. He happens to speak Hebrew. He says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not, uh, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you rely on the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And then every one of you, will eat from your own vine and your own fig tree and you'll drink water from your own cisterns. Until I come and I'll take you to a land that's just like yours, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will save us. Has any of the gods of the nations saved their land from out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Afad? Where are the gods of Sephavim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these countries has saved their countries out of my hand? That the Lord should save Jerusalem out of my hand. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay. This is no idle boast. Okay, the king of Assyria has indeed won. The, the Rav Shakar is not lying. No one has been able to defeat Assyria yet. No Jewish army has won. The only thing that's left of Hezekiah is Jerusalem. And what has God done to save his people? Nothing. God has not lifted a finger. Why not? Are these not the chosen people? Does not God love his people? Rebellion. Yeah. Rebellion. Consequences to actions. Okay, so what's going on here is not a lie. Yet something here does spark God to act. Because what happens after this event? They're delivered. They will, uh, he goes to Isaiah. They, they go to the temple. He asks for prayer. There's repentance. Yep. And then and there's deliverance. And God sends his, his angel and 185,000 Syrians die. Yeah, now that's interesting. Okay. So God didn't do anything until this man, the Rav Shakar, what did he do? He said that God was the same as every other God. 
Oh, challenging God, yeah. Uh-huh. Your, your God is the same as everybody else's. Everybody else's gods have not helped them. Your God's exactly the same. So this is what they call, uh, call Chilul Hashem. This is uh, a, a, a curse of the name. And God, you could just imagine, is sitting in heaven and he says, you know what? I'm sitting here, I'm looking around, and I really actually can't see any other gods up here. It's just me. Okay, now I am not like everybody else. So now, now, now I act. So cast your mind to Zedekiah and the Babylonians come. But God does not act to save. And God takes his people away into, into captivity. What is the difference between Hezekiah and Zedekiah? They both have a temple. They've both got priests. They've both got the Torah. And they're all praying. God acts. And God doesn't act on another. Now, when you're Jewish and you're sitting in captivity in Babylon and you're sitting down going, oh, my gosh, what has happened? We're the chosen people. Why is our temple destroyed? Why are we here? What, what happened? What actually happened to us? We now do not have a temple. We don't have synagogues. We don't have a Beit Midrash. We do have the Bible and we've got a bunch of priests with nothing else to do, okay, because there's no temple. So we've got time to ask questions. We go back to the text and we begin to actually read the text. We didn't read it while we had it in the land, but now we do. And we come to these passages and we go, hey, look, God acted for Hezekiah and he doesn't act for Zedekiah. What is the difference? And they discover it's got to do with the name of God. So, so suddenly the, the, the name of God becomes incredibly important for the Jewish people. And where does it happen? It happens outside the land of Israel. Okay. And so we're going to see that sort of all that theology show up uh, in the Maccabees in a minute. And so if you do something wrong, that, could, that would curse the name of God, that would cause him to act negatively. But on the other hand, if you did something good, like Hezekiah prayed or repented, <laughs> did something, then God will be spurred to action on your behalf. And so sanctification of the name of God becomes incredibly important. You can do this outside the land of Israel, or you can do it on the inside of the land of Israel. So when the Jewish people come back, they're being very careful to honour the name of God. So they get rid of all their idols for a start. Idolatry was rife in the first temple period. Anyone who's doing archaeology in this country, whenever you dig up a site and you find idols, you know this is a first temple period settlement. If you find houses and there's no idols, second temple period, right? The problem in the first temple period is idolatry. The problem in the second temple is, guess what? Greed, money, which is what you find in the New Testament, okay? Money is the the root of all evil. Jesus is rarely walking around going, Jews, put away your idols. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you're not sharing. You've got to take care of the widows and the orphans. You've got to be a little bit more generous with what God has given you. Yeah, love of money, not money itself is a root Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's what it, yeah, the love of money is a, is, a, is, a, is a sore point. Now, the Greeks come. Alexander dies, and on his deathbed, he announces that his kingdom will go to the strongest of his four generals. Well, that's just a recipe for civil war, right? Because now they're all fighting. So his, his empire is divided into four. Everybody starts fighting everybody. Um, we, 
Jerusalem, we become under the control of the Seleucids. And they fight the Ptolemies and etc. But most of our time is spent under the Seleucid rule. They are Greek. Their Greek mindset is cosmopolitan. Does anyone know what that word means in Greek? It means world citizen. Everybody can be the same. It doesn't matter what color skin you have. We can all speak Greek. We can all dress the same. We can all go to school. We can all go to our gymnasiums. We can all worship Zeus. We can all be the same. Sounds like a wonderful life, doesn't it? The Greeks thought so. Have you noticed that is exactly the same thing our world is trying to tell us today too? No change, right? There is nothing new under the sun, the wise man once said. So the Greeks are here trying to impose this, 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 this thing on, on the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are reading their text and they're saying, actually, no, in our Bible, we don't see it that way. There is a chosen people. We have a job to do. We have a lot to be to the nations. There is something special. We have something called the, the Torah. We have some rules called the mitzvot. We can't just do what you do. We have, we've, got to, we've got to stay a little bit distinct. We are the chosen people. We've got to eat a certain food. We've got to dress a certain way. We have to say certain prayers. Uh, we, we don't do stuff on Shabbat. Uh, we get circumcised. There's a lot of these things. Eventually, the Seleucids kept trying to influence the, the, their portion of the world. And uh, eventually they became quite forceful at it. And a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes decided, okay, that's it. We're done. I'm tired of trying to be nice. We go the hard way. He forbids the reading of Torah. He cancels the Sabbath. He forbids circumcision. And he changes the temple into the temple of Zeus. And he begins to offer sacrifices. And so the Jewish people, one said, well, we need to, we need to react. Some reacted with study, not violence. Some reacted by just deeper and deeper and deeper study. Another group of people reacted with violence, which we now, we know them as the Maccabees, the Hashmonim, okay, uh, uh, priestly family. Parts of them were priestly families. And uh, initially they, they had some success. They engaged in the guerrilla war and, um, and there were a few battles which are all described in books one and two of the Maccabees. The first book of Maccabees is originally written in Hebrew. It doesn't have God in it at all. There's no mention of God at all. It's just like the book of Esther. No God. In fact, we did it. And the second book of Maccabees, which was most likely compiled in diaspora, puts God all over it. Tells the same story, but God shows up. All the heroes pray. They sing psalms. They create new hymns, and they defeat the, the Greeks. But they also defeat, in 2 Maccabees, Hellenistic Jews. Part of the enemy in 2 in the, in Maccabees are, are people within. So in, in 1 Maccabees, it's always the guys outside. 2 Maccabees is, is part of us as well. But one of the things that you find in 2 Maccabees is martyrdom. Martyrdom stories, which you don't see in, uh, in 1 Maccabees. In 1 Maccabees, heroes die. They always die in battle. And it's glorious. Does anyone, anyone know one of the, uh, one of the famous uh, Maccabean heroes and how he died? Judas. No, Judas is the leader. A guy called Simon. You heard it? Do you know what he did? Okay, so he ran under an elephant. The Greeks had big war elephants. And he stabbed it with a spear and he killed the elephant. And the elephant fell on him. Okay? And so a glorious death, okay, would make a great movie. They would have put it on his tombstone, but they couldn't find much of him left, okay? But, um, but it is a bit of a problem. But in 1 Maccabees, 
The heroes die, but they always die really well in battle. They fall valiantly. In 2 Maccabees, the, a lot of the, the heroes die from martyrdom. Okay? And so uh, you get the story of uh, Eliezer, who was, uh, who was a high priest, and he was uh, forced to eat pork. Well, he wouldn't do it. So they burnt him at the stake. I'm going to read the portion from 2 Maccabees that describes it. I'm going to read the, the, the portion of, um, from 4th Maccabees 6.24. So that it's in 2nd Maccabees and it's in 4th Maccabees. So when they saw that he was so courageous in the face of the afflictions, this is uh, Eliezer, he's being, um, he's being flayed, they're sort of you know, doing nasty things with his skin, that he hadn't changed. Um, the guards brought him to the fire, so they're going to, they're going to set him on fire. And they burned him. And they, uh, but when he was burning to his very bones and about to expire, he lifted his eyes to God and he said, You know, O God, that though I might have saved myself, I am dying in burning torments for the sake of the law. Be merciful to your people and let our punishment, like what's happening to me, suffice for them. Make my blood their purification. Take my life in exchange for theirs. And after this, this holy man died. And then uh, after this, you get another uh, horrible story of a mother and her seven sons. And uh, this entire chapter, chapter seven, is just the story of how each son is brutally killed in front of the mother. None of them renounce their faith. And then finally, they kill the mother. And you, and you think, well, I could have just said that in one sentence. No, the, the chapter is very graphic and it, it gets mentioned. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.35 describes that women were, were and their sons went uh, to, to, to die, knowing of a, of a better place for resurrection. So I've got the Apocrypha, but it only has First and Second Maccabees, right? Yes. Yep, most Apocrypha only has First and Second Maccabees. Why is that? Because that was the one that was translated into Septuagint Greek. So Jerome had access to the Septuagint. So he translated 1 and 2 Maccabees into Latin for the Vulgate. And that's the reason why those two books are the ones that are most preserved. Books 3 and 4 were kept, but they were kept by Eastern denominations. Okay? So they're kept by Ethiopians, uh, Egyptians, Armenians, Syrians. They're kept by the the... The Eastern Orthodox, not the Greeks. You won't find it in, 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 the, in the Greek Orthodox, um, but you'll find it in, the, in, the, in, the, in this side of town. Okay? So in the uh, diaspora, we're focusing why are, we, why are we here? We begin to reread the Bible. We discover that the name of God is incredibly holy, that if you do things for the name of God, that's going to spur him into action. So when it comes to battling the Greeks, we fight him. We fight them in battle, but if they capture us, then we will willingly die with the knowledge that what's happening to us has an effect. It has an effect on God, spurring him to action, and it has an effect on other people. So in 2 Maccabees, Judah Maccabee meets, uh, comes across a battle where the Jews had lost, okay, the, the Maccabees. The, the, the story doesn't, it's not just a, a, a blitzkrieg by the Jews. There's some back and forward. And um, they decide that they're going to bury the dead. 
one of the Gumilut Chasidim, the acts of loving kindness. So as they start burying the dead, they discover that some of these Jews had amulets on them. And thought, oh my gosh, what's this? This is Abu Dazara. Thought we had gotten rid of this kind of stuff. No, maybe some of them were actually a little bit enticed by Hellenism. They kind of bought these in the markets for some crazy reason. And then they said, this is the reason why they died. So they're sinners. So what, what does Judah do? What he does is he takes a collection of money, buys a bunch of sacrifices, and then he, he sends the sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem to be sacrificed for the dead people's sins, okay? Which is so there was this idea in the second temple period that heaven and earth were incredibly close. When Daniel prayed in Babylon, he's not in, he's not in, in, in Israel, he's in Babylon. When he prayed, how fast did the angel appear? Instantly. And then the next time he prays, it takes the angel three weeks. And the angel says, well, I was on my way. But then this other guy came and stopped me. But the first time, it was instant. And so heaven and earth are like close to Jewish theology. And so, and, and, and the, the, the world that we can't see can affect this world. You know, people can come in and they can talk and they can share. In fact, they even give stuff. So in 2 Maccabees, Judah meets an angel who gives him a sword. Okay. You know, we often think of Judah having a hammer. Because of the of the of his name, Maccabi. Okay, yeah. but in the actual text, he gets a sword. Okay, the sword, the sword of, of Judah the Maccabee, the sword of the Maccabees. And um, so this world can af- their world can affect us. They can give us stuff. But on the other hand, this world can affect the other one. Okay, through our actions, Kiddush Hashem, but also praying for other people, which is not. Usually, what we like thinking it sounds so <gasps> Catholic because this is actually where they get it from because it's in the Catholic Bible. Okay, no, it's true. That's this is where they get it from. So, when you talk to Catholic priests and you say, Listen, you know, why do you guys think of purgatory? They look around and he goes, Do you not read Maccabees? You know, and he's like, Well, <laughs> so that, that's, that's where they're getting it from. So, this world can affect that other world. Why would Judah? What was his purpose? I guess it's probably not explicit in the text, but what would his purpose be for interceding for them? Um, because, because in the in the in, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, when we talk about Sheol, the Sheol, there's there's almost no information about it. Sheol is just the place everybody goes, and it's boring. I mean, why? It, it, there was like nothing there. David says, don't send me there because how can I praise you if I'm, if I'm in Sheol? In the second temple period, we're rereading the Bible and we're looking at verses that we hadn't quite looked at before and suddenly we realize there's resurrection. Isaiah says that the dead will come back. The earth will give back its dead. I will see the Lord with my eyes. How is all this going to happen? You are preparing a body for me in Sheol. Yes, so what you're doing is you're looking at texts and you're rereading them, you're really thinking hard, and they began to say, okay, there is a resurrection. The dead are going to come back out of Sheol. When they come back, they're going to have bodies, and, it's going to, and, and obviously the, the souls are there, so maybe we can influence them before it comes back. Maybe we can fix it, okay? And, and you'll find, you will find cryptic verses in the New Testament 
Paul says you can baptize for the dead, but no one knows what he means by that. No one, okay? Just letting everybody know. Everybody thinks that they can tell me what it means. We don't. It's one obscure line. <laughs> Jesus says a sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or in the next. You're like, what? What does that mean? There are some cryptic verses, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to go back to Kiddush Hashem, okay? The idea of dying for God. And so um, there's another story where they expound in 4th Maccabees 17. Uh, it's even a little bit more. Um, this time uh, the, the evil enemy is just called the tyrant. We don't even give him a name. Just like in the New Testament, we call the enemy the enemy. Right? The enemy. We have an enemy running around. Well, they, they call their guy the tyrant, although he was a human. The top, this is a, a fourth Maccabees 17, starting at verse um, 20, starting at verse 19. For Moses says, all who are cons- consecrated are under your hands. These then who have been consecrated for the sake of God, for the sake of his name, are honored not only with this honor, but also by the fact that because of them, our enemies did not rule over our nation. These are the martyrs. Because of the martyrs, not because of the heroes, not because of the warriors, because of the people who died. The tyrant was punished. Why? Because of the martyrs. And the homeland was purified. Why? Because of the martyrs. They having become, as it were, a ransom for the sin of our nation. And through the blood of those devout ones and their death as an atoning sacrifice. Whoa, what an interesting language. Divine providence preserved Israel that had previously been mistreated. And so the blood of the martyrs could pay for the sins of the earth and it could pay for the sins of other people and it could, it could make God come and, and do something. We have the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. In the middle is 400 years, 400 years where we're wrestling against Hellenism, we're re-looking at the Bible, we're asking why did we end up in diaspora, why are we not in control of the country, what is going on? We start to re-look at the text with a fine-tooth comb. We, we see heroes like uh, Hezekiah get redeemed and we see heroes like Zedekiah not, yet they had exactly the same thing. They both had the temple, they had sacrifices, they had the Bible, but it wasn't going to save them. And so how you read the Bible changes your behavior. So they began to read their Bible in such a way that they, just, they discovered that the name of God was incredibly holy, so they would do things that for the sake of the name and that would spur God to come and act and, and save and redeem. And then you get to, to Jesus. And at Passover, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, okay, which is for Israel. Okay? In, in, in the actual text in Jeremiah, where God says, I'm going to make a new covenant, does he say, I'm going to make it with blood? No, he doesn't. Does he want to make a new covenant? And I'm going to put the Torah on your hearts. By the, time, by the time in diaspora, blood's very important. Not the blood of animals, not the blood of bulls and goats, because we've had that before and it didn't help. Whose blood was important? Ours. And so Jesus, who's got the most special blood on the planet, right, comes along and says, my blood 
is going, is going to seal the new covenant and, and, it, and it can forgive sins. But not only just a few sins, not just for the land, for the entire world, past and present. That's how special my blood is. And it's going to spur God to come and save. And he's going to do, do something because I am God. So you've got this, the, the, the New Testament is not like the Maccabees. The Maccabees is the basis for the New Testament. You know, that theology is that sits underneath it. And so when you get into the late Second Temple period, you've got all these different groups running around Jerusalem. You've got the Sadducees, who are priests, and they have a very redacted Bible. They've got the five books of Moses, they've got some judges and the book of Psalms, and that's it. So that's how they read the text. So they don't believe in the resurrection. Then you've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees have most of the Bible, and they've got their little interpretations about how you do it. They, they've got some, they've got halakha, they've got agadah, they've got legends and stories. So how they read the Bible changes their behavior. You've got the Essenes, disgruntled priests who run down into the desert. They've got the Bible, except the Book of Esther, and they've got their own books as well. And then you've got Messianics. Messianics have the Torah and the Bible. And they're beginning to also get some new books of their own. They're all Jews. They all come from exactly the same community. But how you read your Bible changes your behavior. And so uh, question there from Nigeria. Chimshon. Yeah, yeah. Not, not really a question. Um, actually, when you were talking about... Um, the martyrdom in the in Maccabees, especially in the second book of Maccabees, you know, it's very touching um, when you listen to the story of this woman and her seven sons. Um, because while it was going on, she was encouraging them yep. to stand yep. by the Lord. You know, it was so moving. You know, it's one of the most amazing parts that I've ever read. And, you know, she could have been drawn with emotion and, you know, just... Tell them, okay, just give up. I will pray for your sin. But she was so strong in telling them that um, I give birth to you, and this is what how I brought you up to stand with the Lord. You know, it was very powerful. And and I think Hebrews eleven is is talking about her. I think that that yes, 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 because the the, the yeah, yes, absolutely. I I agree with that too. I agree with that too. Yeah. A few other connections. When Antiochus Epiphanes came and changed the temple into the temple of Zeus, guess what day of the year it was? It was the 25th of Kislev. Okay. That's, uh, so Kislev is one of the winter months here in, in Israel. So it's uh, now. It's now. Yeah, so November, December. Okay, 25th. And when, when Judah Maccabee and his heroes rededicated the temple, they rededicated it on the 25th. Exactly the same day. Because in Jewish tradition, things happen on the same day. Temples destroyed on the same day. Heroes are born and die on the same day. Okay? And so um, the, uh, the Jewish tradition, not the Jewish tradition, the, the Messianic Jewish tradition is that Jesus was um, put into the womb at Passover. Nine months from Passover is which festival? Chanukah. It's this time. Okay? So... There is, okay, there's the different traditions as to when, where Jesus uh, was born. Some would say Sukkot, some would say Hanukkah, some would say a little bit later, like the Greeks have got it in January. I have a Hebrew teacher and she says that, um, she was actually telling us today that uh, this Hanukkah, is there some sort of connection with 
the seven days, but is there a connection with Sukkot? Well, the, the connection with Sukkot is that it's an eight-day festival. Jewish people appreciated eight days. So Passover has uh, eight days. Uh, Sukkot has eight days. Shavuot, uh, uh, Sukkot, eight days. And um, so when you get into Holy Week, Holy Week's eight days. It's Sunday to Sunday. Okay? That's where they get those uh, traditions from. Okay? Um, and the 25th appears showing up in December based on, on the story of Hanukkah because it was in the Bible of the church back then. There wasn't, there was, this is before the split, right, okay, before we call it the Catholic Church, just the church. And um, now I'm not saying the 25th is his birthday, okay? It's, it, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the reason they chose that day was because it's in the Book of Maccabees. Okay? That's the, 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 um, the connection. And December happens to be their month at the end of the, of the calendar, so it was a logical step for them, okay? Um, it is the, 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 the Christmas is not based around the winter solstice. That occurs on the 21st. So if you're trying to celebrate the winter solstice, you're always missing it by four days. And it doesn't explain why the Greeks do their holiday on Christmas on the 6th of January, because that's now three weeks away from uh, the winter solstice. So they're missing it completely. You also find that by the second temple, by the, by the beginning of the New Testament, the heroes of the Maccabees um, uh, are so famous, half the disciples are named after them. Okay? So you've got Matthew, who was the, the father's name. You've got Judah. You've got Simon. You've got Eliezer, Lazarus. You've got these guys. Half the disciples are named after the Maccabean heroes, and the other half are named after Greeks. Andreas, Philippus, okay? Just because you happen to have a Greek name, doesn't mean that you think Greek, okay? For example, a very famous rabbi uh, who ends up becoming a follower of Jesus, his name is Eliezer ben Hyrkanos. So his father was a guy called Hyrkanos, which is a very Greek name, which because he, he was growing up in this, in this time of Hellenism, people were adopting Greek names. Just because a guy was called Stephanos doesn't mean he was um, a Greek thinker. He was Jewish. He happened to have uh, a Greek name. Lucas. We always think he's a Gentile, but just because he's got a, uh, a Latin name doesn't mean that he's actually uh, a Latin guy, okay? Because Paul changed his name to Paul, which is Latin. That is very, very true. During the time of um, the Yeshua, they don't think about Hellenism in the way they think about Hellenism during the time of the Maccabees. Um, Hellenism is that maybe you are born and brought up there, but it doesn't change your thinking, just like you, you've just pointed out. We have yep. a lot of people that, um, that have those um, Greek thinking, um, have a very strong um, Greek influence in them, but then um, they never consider them as Hellenistic in that negative terms. Um, if you look at the book of Hebrew, um, there's so much debate about the writer of the book of Hebrew, but they agree that whosoever was the writer of the book of Hebrew must have a very strong Greek influence over his life, you know, having... Yep. Um, making a lot of references to the Septuagint. Um, his quotations are usually Septuagint and um, his understanding and his words. And of course, people that understand Greek says that was one of the most fantastic Greek you could see in the whole of the Bible. Yeah, it's good Greek. Very good Greek. Yeah. Greek. Hellenism, not everything about Hellenism is evil. Like even the Jewish people embrace, even good Jews embrace things that are Hellenistic. For example, architecture. Greek yeah. architecture is very good. Let's build buildings with Greek architecture. 
Birthdays. Birthdays are a Greek invention. Okay. Democracy. Here's a good one. School. <laughs> right? Schools are a Greek invention. The idea of having a teacher and a student, like rabbi disciple, that's not a Hebrew invention. That's a Greek invention. Before the Jews were doing it, the Greeks had Socrates and Archimedes and everybody, and they were masters and students. The Jewish people encounter this and go, wow, that's a really good idea. Let's do that, but we'll do it in for the Torah, not for what they're studying. Okay? And so you, you can take some things from the world. We can be of the world, like in, in the world, not of the world. You can take things of it and still do it. You can celebrate your birthday even though it's not in the Bible. You can uh, uh, appreciate uh, a school, or perhaps you don't, <laughs> uh, but whatever, um, and it's okay. All the students have said, yeah, school's bad, bad school. Okay. <laughs> yeah. oh, so the New Testament does, is not created in a vacuum. It appears at the end of the Second Temple period where Jewish thought has, has analyzed how do we get into diaspora what did we do wrong? A relook at the Bible, beginning to put the Bible back. They become the people of the book, put the Bible back into practice. What's incredibly important is the name of God and how you act uh, towards the name. And that includes the ability to do good deeds, but also uh, do bad deeds and therefore bring a judgment upon yourself. But it, and what's so important about sacrifices? Well, there's a few. But what's really important is your own blood and how you're going to spend it. And if you spend it for others, no, what is this? Love ha is, has no greater thing than this, that you lay down your life. Down your life for another. Yeah. And so that becomes part of the theology of the New Testament. And when you get to the special blood of Jesus, it's so special that it seals the new covenant and covers the sins of the world. Okay. And so, uh, and uh, that's the, uh, the theology of, of, of Martin. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King <laughs>